Hey, this is Matt Markin, and this is episode 53 of the Adventures and Advising podcast. Who's on this episode? We have Joshua Loudon from Cal State Fullerton and Dr. Jenny Bloom from Florida Atlantic University. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures and Advising. Welcome to episode 53. Welcome again to episode 53 of the podcast. This is our second episode for the month of February, and we have hit over 20,000 downloads of the podcast. 2022 has definitely been a lot of check off the list moments for me for this podcast. And if you had asked me two years ago if 20K was going to be a thing, I would have said no, which is probably why I don't bet. But I can't thank you enough for everything you do for this podcast, listening to the interviews, resharing social media posts, buying merch. You are the best. And that's why I'm going to keep going as long as I can with this podcast. Thank you again. And I hope you're having a brilliant day. And why don't we just dive right into the first interview? And that's with Joshua Loudon from Cal State Fullerton. Up next is Josh Loudon. Josh is an award-winning academic advising professional who graduated with a double major in anthropology and linguistics and a master's in anthropology from California State University, Fullerton. He started his advising career at CSU Fullerton in 2009 and has not looked back. He currently serves as the associate director in the Campus Academic Advising Center. He also teaches classes like language and culture, culture and communication, and physical anthropology as an adjunct professor at both CSU Fullerton and Fullerton College. In the Academic Advising Center, Josh currently oversees the coordination of the major exploration program for all undeclared students, the Fullerton Finish and California Promise programs, among many other programs facilitated by the center's incredible team of advisors. He enjoys collaborating with numerous departments and colleagues to support students on academic notice, prevent graduation deferrals, and improve retention and degree completion rates, and train new advisors. Josh is a proud father of five-year-old triplet daughters and a two-year-old son. When he's not enjoying time with his family, he can be found drumming in a local cover band, logging miles while training for a marathon, and cooking and eating Thai food. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. I really appreciate it. Yeah, earlier I was thinking, when did we first meet? Uh, <laughs> was it at a California Collaborative Conference? Was it an EAB conference? Was it Nakata? I can't remember. Yeah, you know, I thought about it too. And I remember first seeing your name uh, in 2015 when I was in charge of the first collaborative, the California Collaborative uh, proposals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just tracking like, okay, how many submissions do we have? Because I was, I was a little concerned as the first one. Not a lot of people knew about it. Um, but bam, three proposals. The first ones in were Matt Markin. And I was like, okay, who is this guy? He's super into this stuff so um and and if if we had had you do all three you would have been uh something like 15 percent of all presentations for that year so <laughs> but i i'm just I, you know i just knew right away like okay here's a here's a really great enthusiastic energetic advisor who, who wants to be involved so yeah that's that's when i first you know got to know you and, and i really got to know you through your work and not through talking to you or anything like that but then yeah as the collaboratives went forward you took over when I had the, or when my wife had the triplets yeah. and I watched her have the triplets um, <laughs> you took over that year 
uh, at Riverside. And so having, you know, that's when we, I think that's when we first really connected and, and, you know, I got to, to, to get to know you a lot better. So, so yeah, what's funny about that is like, exactly. I, I remember getting the email uh, back in 2015 and <laughs> yeah, accepting it and then getting to present. Don't think I met you there. And then when I started to join on the steering committee for the California collaborative that following year, yeah, then you were off on paternity leave mm-hmm. and many of us didn't know. I remember someone emailed and they got the reply back that says you were out. And they're like, oh, okay, that's why. <laughs> He's out. Yeah. I shouldn't have okay. been doing anything anyway because it was pretty blurry, blurry <laughs> situation for three months. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was great to have you back the following year and, and every year after that. And even now with the combined Region 9 and CalCan conference happening uh, later this year. So Definitely. how'd you get started in higher ed and advising? Yeah, you know, having listened to this podcast and and uh you know i've been thinking about it i've actually thought about it since my very first nakata presentation in 2012 uh about advisor training but you know i got into it like a lot of people do is is sort of by mistake you know it i was really interested in anthropology i was totally on track to teach community college and you know that's what i want to do is was teach and i and I already knew I loved the classroom because um, actually in high school, I, I was a TA and, and the, the, the teacher I was helping, he, he like let me lecture sometimes. And I was just like, okay, this is great. Um, and it was like a study skills class. And I just knew that I loved the classroom. And so that's what I, that's where I was going. I, I didn't know about anthropology until I started college. I was a community college student. And um, actually started at Fullerton College, which is where I teach now. And I just, you know, it was the summer after high school graduation. I I wanted to take a class to get ahead kind of thing. And I found cultural anthropology. And I thought, this sounds really interesting. I have no idea what it's going to be about. But that's what got me into anthropology. And uh, then I, I also went to Mount Sac Community College. and. Um, that's where I did most of my community college u- units and I took all the anthropology I could there. And, and just, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Then I get, I get transferred to Cal State Fullerton and I, I find linguistics somehow. I don't, I don't even know exactly how it was just like, it was part of one lecture one day and I knew I really liked learning languages. So I, I had spent some time in Thailand and, and learned Thai and so I thought, okay, let's let's bring this into my work with with cultural studies and things like that. And that's where um, I first went to an advisor, an academic advisor. It was my first time. I was a senior in the university at Cal State Fullerton, and um, my advisor was uh, a grad student, and she wasn't a full time advisor or anything. But but the AAC, the Academic Advising Center, at the time had several grad students that, that helped with advising. And she like opened my mind, like, wow, I, okay. She's, she like helped me figure out what I needed to do to, to graduate on time because I was a double major. She, she helped me figure out the GE situation cause I wasn't sure about it. And it was maybe like a 10 minute meeting, you know, it was, it wasn't anything special, uh, but it, it, it impacted me. And so later 
my uh, senior year, I, I got in. I got I got into the uh, grad program, the master's program in anthropology there at, at Cal State Fulton, and I thought I should. I'd love to work on campus. I you know I had just been laid off. It was two thousand nine, right? So two thousand nine is when every furloughs were happening and the economy was tanked and. So I had actually been laid off from a, a retail job and thought working on campus would be really cool. And so to to make that story short, I, I interviewed at the AAC, um, the Academic Advising Center. When I was leaving the interview, I saw uh, this guy I knew from high school who was a grad student working there. And I was like, what? Keith, you're here. And then so apparently, I didn't know that he was going to do this, but after I left, Keith told them because I had taken art classes with Keith in high school and stuff and he knew what I was like he had told the the director like hire this guy he's he's really good and I was like oh thanks Keith so so Keith actually put in, put in the good word for me so I actually worked as a student assistant in the AAC my my first semester of grad school and that meant I was mostly at the front desk I was answering the phones and welcoming the hundreds of students that came in because it was an extremely busy center at the time. Uh, my director saw how I worked with the students. She saw how I handled the phone. Um, she, For some reason, she really liked that I was always like cleaning <laughs> whenever there's downtime. And she thought like, oh, Josh, you you should be an advisor. Like you should help us advise students. And I was like, okay. So she handed me this giant binder of like all the transfer agreements with all the community colleges and and all the executive orders university policies and she's like study this for a week and then we'll start having you shadow and then you know in a couple of weeks you'll start advising and i was like whoa okay <laughs> and 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 so that was you know and that's you know thanks to dr bridget driscoll you know i got my start in advising so again like i i just wanted to work on campus but it turns out you know i had this this ability to work with all types of students and, and somebody noticed, you know, and, and so I, I really appreciated that, that, that attention to that detail and being able to, to get started. So for all of my grad program, I was an advisor, you know, part-time. And um, once I graduated, there was an opening for an SSP one, which is our, you know, student service professional first level entry level so I applied for that and, and got it. And then I, a year later, I applied for the two that was available. Then there was a three the year later. So I just sort of, you know, found my way into it. And finally, 2015, I, our assistant director, Julia Capelli leaves. Um, she, she becomes a director of advising for the kinesiology department. And I'm asked to be the interim assistant director in uh, 2015. And and so during the, those years of advising, I had created a, an advising training program with a syllabus and everything because I was, I was into teaching and I was in charge of the major exploration program for all our undeclared students during that time. And so I had a pretty good understanding of how the office worked and what the expectations were. Um, so it was sort of a, a good fit for me. And I still, because we were short on, on staff. Like I still work with students every day and, and had a lot of responsibilities with students. So I, it was a, it was a sort of a gradual uh, shift and in, into associate director is what I am now. 
Yeah. And when your bio says that, you know, you didn't look back, I mean, you didn't. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's I nice. Kept yeah. places to go at Cal State Fullerton. Yeah, definitely. I, I appreciated the opportunities for movement. And I know that's not the case for everyone, but the, the timing worked out. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I had to apply for each position and interview. And, you know, even when I was interim assistant director, that was, that was short term. That was only a few months. And then I had to apply and interview and compete with, with other very qualified people for the assistant director um, position. So I'm glad there were opportunities and, and that I, you know, quote unquote, earned them. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's nice knowing about like, you know, some of the entry level ones you had like years and years ago and someone noticing the the work you're putting in and Definitely. noticing that that you can make a difference in the next job and, and the next position. So you never know who's watching. That can be a scary thing, but that can also be a really good thing, too. And how would you describe Cal State Fullerton? I mean, I know it's part of the Cal State system there's 23 cal states but they're not all the same so yeah definitely <laughs> i wish we were closer to the mountains like you guys over there in san Bernardino. but um yeah it's largely a commuter campus although we see some shifts happening here and there but i i mean the pandemic really impacted that but we have a lot of 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 new housing available for for resident students so and it, it's filling up so i, I think you know, we're, we're sort of shifting, but for the most part, we are largely a commuter campus. We are majority transfer students. And I think mostly because we do admit transfers fall and spring. So, um, we end up with, with more of them than, than we do a first time freshman. It's a large campus as far as students. We, we have about 40,000 students. If you count grad, about 35,000 undergrad. It's a, we're an HSI institution. But we also have a, a larger a PETA student group, so so it's a diverse campus as well. As far yeah, as far as as that goes, we get a, a lot of different types of students, and and we're we're very used to it. And it's actually one of the reasons I really like teaching there and Fullerton College as well. Is there's just a, a diverse community there going to college, and so I've always had really good diverse classrooms and and populations of students like our undeclared population it's always shifting a little bit but it's usually first gen you are uh, underrepresented minorities and and they do well and, and that's one of the reasons i love undeclared students is a lot of people think they're just like chilling and they don't know what they're doing and but the truth is like they're they're outperforming a lot of other colleges in our in our university and uh once they commit to something they're committed and and they're less likely to change their major yeah, I like our undeclared students are, are doing great. And I like to, to, to make sure the, the campus community knows that, you know, sometimes administrators will, will just assume like undeclared needs help. Yeah. But the truth is they're, they're very good students. Yeah. Sometimes that they have that has that negative connotation to it's like, oh, uh -huh. I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be undeclared. I, I need to know what I'm yeah, doing. And sometimes students are afraid of it, too. They're like, I don't want to be undeclared. But it's like, hey, it's not a bad thing. You know, right. It's like students yeah. change their majors. You know, a lot of times people <laughs> people may act like they know, like, this is what I'm going to do. And they change their major a year in or a semester in or two years in or they're in their senior year. And they're like, I really didn't want to do this major. Exactly. And I was reading that you spent significant time in Thailand and you've examined the generational differences in language between adults <laughs> and adolescent Thai speakers in Bangkok. 
Yeah, yeah, you you did your homework because I didn't give that to you. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> so part of my my thesis was looking at the the Thai language, and so I did my my very very first exposure to Thailand was it was actually as a volunteer missionary uh, for my church, but um, I've gone back several times since, and yeah, one of the the things I was really curious about was in Thailand, and and actually. When you look at you know the United States as well, you'll see this. But the younger generation tends to to use slang more and and sort of man- manipulate the language a little bit more. So, like one of the things I always bring up, and I mean it's it's not a PC necessarily, but but I I remember in college I never did this obviously, but um, there would there would be girls in my classroom who were friends, and they would call each other the B word, and it was like okay. That's very interesting because you're totally really good friends. And like normally I think of that word as, as having a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. But for younger people calling each other that, they're so close that they, they feel like they can do that and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And I was just, and I saw that in Thailand as well and almost exactly like that. So I thought, okay, how about I do some observations, some interviews and, you know, get you know, figure this out. And some of the big takeaways from that, and this is very academic of me, but I just, I I asked people like, when do you think you'll stop doing this? So I I would ask younger folks. And most of of my research I did at Thai restaurants that were near campus because they had a lot of um, international students that were working there. So they were from Bangkok, but living uh, close by. So I, I was able to talk to them. And a lot of them would tell me, oh, when I get married, I'm not going to talk like that anymore. So that was like their big, like, this is the the barrier of adulthood is is marriage. And so I thought that was really interesting. And, and a lot of the older people I would talk to would sort of confirm like, yeah, once I got married, it was just, you know, you don't talk like that anymore. That's not appropriate. So that, that was the generational difference, right? It was just, I was really interested. Is there actually a line to cross, you know, when you stop talking like that? And of course, it's it's mostly like subconscious. I don't, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm married. Boom. I'm going to stop talking like that. But it's more like, oh, I've got all these other responsibilities, you know, and they, they start to see themselves differently socially. But now I'm wondering, once they, if they did get married, did they actually stop at that point? Yeah. And that's, you know, if I if I spent another year on it, I probably could have confirmed like, yes, this is it. This is where it's going. <laughs> Now, back at Fullerton, you do a lot of various things in your associate director role, and you talked about some of that already. Now, a couple of the programs uh, that was mentioned was the Fullerton Finish and California Promise in your bio. Mm -hmm. So what is the Fullerton Finish and what is California Promise? What is California Promising? Okay, yeah. And it's always confusing for transfer students uh, because there are other programs out there called California Promise that community colleges have started that actually provide like financial assistance and, and different things like tuition assistance or, or textbook assistance. Yeah. So California promise at the CSU level is sort of, it's like a, a, a four year, two year track commitment that's that um, Pell eligible students can make. So that's a, a large group of our campus that's invited. Um, and it, we have a transfer program and, a freshman program. And so every fall we invite this, these groups of students. And then in the spring, we invite the transfers mm-hmm. to be a part of California Promise. 
And ultimately, it, it's a few hundred students every year that join. And then as, and I'm actually coordinating this because um, we don't have a person assigned to it right now. So I, I track them each semester to semester. I give them an advising requirement to complete so that, that I can check their status and make sure that they're connecting with their advisors. And then we sort of make sure they're on track. And it's sort of like a unit you know, they need to meet a certain unit amount every year. And so I, I just sort of help track that, make sure the assignments get turned in by these students. And if students stop participating, then I remove them from the program. But, you know, I still let them know, like, hey, you can still finish on time. And I, I've over the pandemic, I got very lenient with deadlines. Um, just like, hey, I understand it's hard to connect with advisors right now. So you can take another couple of weeks and, and get this to me and stuff like that. But that's the California promise. And so what we had before California promise was created was a Fullerton finish program, which was a four year commitment. And then we, we added the two year as well. And it's very similar, but it's for everyone else that, that didn't get the, the California promise invite. We invite them to the Fullerton finish and again, it's a, a, a couple hundred every every semester that, that want to join. And I, I keep the requirements very similar for simplicity's sake. And, and the program does seem to work. We tracked Fulton Finish for a long time before California Promise was, was created. And they actually used some of our data to sort of come up with California Promise. People reached out to me and asked me for data from Sacramento. You know, do these four-year programs work? Do these commitment programs work? What are you seeing? You know, and, and one thing that I, I pointed out to them was, well, yeah, now that I'm looking at it, I see that students, even if they don't participate the whole time, if they participated for one year, they're still more likely to graduate in four years than not. It's like 70% of, of students who started in the program, even if they didn't finish in it, still finished in four. They just weren't participating in the requirements. So it's it's almost like they figured out how to do it and they just went with it. So I don't need that medallion at the end of the, uh, you know, I don't need that for the ceremony. So yeah, so those are the two programs. We don't provide uh, financial assistance, but we, we do provide priority registration dates. Nice, which is very helpful. I mean... Yes, a lot of students appreciate it. Yes, you know, especially some of those like sequence-based classes where mm -hmm. you don't get it that one term it may not be offered till the following year. Yeah. And we, we do actually ask departments if they want to participate. Mm -hmm. And so at first, some of those, those really important departments who had those sequences, like engineering, computer science, um, some of the, the natural sciences, they, they didn't want to participate because they're like, look, the average student doesn't finish in four. So we don't want to like put that pressure on them. But then They've opened up over the years and, and said, okay, well, if they start at certain math levels, then yes, let's do it. You know, let's let them do it. You know, that kind of thing. So, so we've actually opened up to more majors now than, than we used to. Yeah. It gives more opportunities for students to apply and then, mm -hmm. you know, take advantage of that higher registration uh, date and hopefully get the class they need and do well and graduate. 
But yeah, that's very similar for us because we have we had the four year pledge program for our university. And then it was like, okay, now it's the California promise. And we're like, we already have it. So now it's yeah. So we kind of consider it like a subgroup of the four year pledge because there was a lot of confusion in the beginning. They're like, am I applying for four year pledge or California promise? In a way, they're kind of the same thing. It's just what majors (laughs) are in each one. So we ended up uh, like at orientation, we had a slide on it for students. And so we said, four-year pledge this is what it's called. But some majors are in the four-year California promise, uh, but it's the same thing, same application, same, same Just, benefits yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, because yeah, that first year, it was rough. It was like uh, trying to explain it to, to staff, faculty, uh, students. And it's like, okay, we need to find like a simpler way for this. Yeah, definitely. We had to sort of stretch and figure out, okay, that's why we decided we won't even invite the California Promise people to Fullerton Finish because they've already got something. We're going to invite everyone else. And and yeah, so it took it was a learning curve for sure. Yeah, bringing absolutely. On both. Just like everything. Yeah, everything is a learning curve and you figure <laughs> how to go, what I need to fix, what's going right, what, what needs to get changed. Uh, now, in your bio, you mentioned that you help with preventing uh, graduation deferrals and mm-hmm. so are we talking like deferrals in students thinking they've completed their requirements but still have requirements left or students that are postponing graduation stay with us we'll be right back cracking the college admissions code just got easier i'm rebecca gordon your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous tune into the admissions game satire edition and uncover my top secrets for surefire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. The first, yeah. So in on our campus, we you know we, probably because it is a large campus. When I when I started professionally so my first ssp1 position right before that i had this this mission i wanted to find out how many students got deferrals last year you know so this is bugging me because they they come up every once in a while like a student will just come in with a a deferral letter and i'm just like okay uh, i can't look this up it's not on file anywhere what is it and it was actually a super helpful document because it said exactly what was missing you know, the student was here a year ago, thought they were done, but they had missed one thing. And so as a as a grad student, that was sort of one of the tasks I had was, okay, let's look at all these deferrals. What are the trends? What was missing? And so I, I along with uh, a couple other grad students who I'm proud to say have gone on to other advising positions and are now doing great, um, we worked together on finding basically creating a plan for each deferral from, I think it was 2009. So this was 2010 when we did it. And these are the 2009 deferrals. That was actually quite a challenge because the, the records office, the grad unit, they have them in their own files, like for their own, mm-hmm. you know, personal use, but it wasn't something that was like scanned and like easily accessible. So they provided us with all the deferral letters. It took a while, but we were able to create a plan for every single student and there's when we were looking at it there were still 1100 1100 deferrals that we went through um that year and what this did was because some of these students weren't missing 
what they really were missing was a transcript from the community college or AP credit or, or at the time we were, you know, requiring the uh, EWP, the, the graduation writing exam, like they were missing one, you know, one exam thing or, or something like that. This was very preventable. And this is actually, so basically this, our group of grad students became the first grad specialists uh, for our university. And I know that this is a position that has gone on to, to other uh, campuses as well, but just someone who's focused on getting these students graduated. You know, that was the goal. We set aside our regular advising so that we could get these students graduated. And so we found some barriers. We found some preventable issues because we were uh, requiring the EWP and every major already had a, a, a writing requirement, an upper division writing requirement. And the executive order for graduation requirements says you just need one or the other. But Cal State Fulton at the time, we were requiring both. And so Bridget Driscoll, she said, look, you know, she, she went to the provost's office and said, look, we've got all these students who already have an upper division writing course complete. And there's something like 55 or something. And, and all they need is the EWP. Let's just, can we just let them graduate? And, and the provost agreed. And, and so then from then on, it was like a, a total change. So like students weren't required starting, I think, in 2012 or so. They stopped the EWP and just said, you know, make sure every major has an upper division writing requirement, which they do. Um, so just things like that, like big major changes happened because of, you know, three grad students trying to get students to graduate, you know. <laughs> so that's that's the deferral prevention. Well, well, that was the correction. And then, you know, the grad specialists were hired. We started hiring grad specialists in 2014. And so we were hoping by getting every college on this early, we could start preventing deferrals. And that's what we've seen um, basically from 2014 on. I think they've prevented something like 11,000 deferrals or something ridiculous like that. Wow. But it almost yeah. seems like it just takes someone to just do a little bit of, of digging yes. and ask a few questions and it creates a change that ends up making a positive impact. So that that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, retention is a big buzzword, especially it seems over the last year or so with the pandemic and some students not returning back. So even advisors. So for you, what are ways to improve retention efforts for students, especially in today's climate? Yeah. One of, well, one of the things we've, we've really proud of, we're really proud of at Cal State Fulton um, among all of the advising we have what are called retention specialists in each college. And one effort that we do every semester without fail is to look at students not enrolled who were enrolled, you know, at least a semester or two uh, ago. So the non-enrolled uh, campaigns are what we call them. And EAB is what we use. Uh, we call it TitanNet, but it's it's EAB Navigate. We have a new tool in there that's like specifically designed for non-enrolled campaigns, which is really helpful. We're going to try that out this year and, and see how it works. But basically, it, it's got email tracking. So, you know, a student has opened it, you know, to, you know, if they've clicked on a link. So it gives us a little more information because a lot of students, when we do non-enrolled campaigns, they see the email and then they just register. Like we don't even know, like we, we assume they saw the email and then registered because all of a sudden 
students will register after we email them <laughs> that they didn't register. Um, but but another cool thing is when the students reply to us or if we're calling them and they answer the phone, you know, we get a lot of good information from them about why they aren't enrolled. Probably, I would say probably for the first time in a, in a while, we've got a, a provost who is actually like wanting to know what students are saying. So, you know, my director, Dr. Boretz, and our team of retention specialists are asking and, and trying to find out more about why students aren't enrolling, especially during this time of pivoting all the time, right? So so we're going virtual for a couple of weeks and then in person. So does that change anyone's enrollment? Uh, so, so that's one retention thing has shown a lot of success. On average, I think we bring back around 30 to 40% of the students that aren't enrolled just by reaching out to them. And, and that's, that's huge. That's, that's been really good. So keeping students going uh, is, is helpful. Another thing that retention specialists do that, that's really handy is they work with our students on what, was, what we used to call academic probation. We call it academic notice now. That whole group of students who are typically first-generation uh, underrepresented students uh, being able to to work with them one on one or in groups, however we can, to to keep them going, keep them motivated. And you know, none of our students are bad students. If if they got into a CSU, they are they are smart cookies. You know, they they know what's going on uh, educationally. There's there's just something happened typically. You know, that interrupted their flow or or. You know, there's there's so many things that happen with these students. I know you work with them too, so there's definitely a lot that that we can do with with students when when we're focused on on keeping them with us. And you know, none of this is you know mind bending or anything. It's just making sure we do it consistently uh, is really the the trick that that we've seen on our campus. Yeah, it almost seems like sometimes it's students may have just forgotten or they got busy with work or something. So sometimes it's just that little reminder, like, Hey, registration already passed. You know, you, you can still get into classes, get registered or just let them know we're here. If you have questions, let us know. You're going to take a term off. Let us know. Let's yeah, figure out what yeah, happens exactly. after that. That's exactly. That's our goal. Yeah, exactly. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts. But have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. And then you also train new advisors. And I don't know about you, but it seems many of us, you know, once, you know, advisors who've been here for a while, there's more and more and more to do. There's more students to advise. You know, we have many advisors also leaving higher ed, which now means more student caseloads in addition to that. Um, so I guess for you, like, what does training look like nowadays for a new advisor? And I guess, how do you help advisors who maybe want more professional development, but there just seems to be no time to do that anymore? Yeah, the, you know, recently we we did lose 
I guess two advisors, you know, we have a team of 10 and we, we recently lost two and they're, they're alive. I, I guess I don't want to make, <laughs> make it sound like they died or anything, but yeah, they're just, they've moved on to, to different places. One stayed in advising just at a, another school that's closer to her house and, and one uh, sort of totally shifted into a different public sector, but we definitely miss them with, with helping out with, with the, the many, many students that we work with. But yeah, when it comes to training new people, we we like them to feel like they're part of the team. So we we develop the the training into different modules, and uh, I think they're called units right now. Um, but basically, I, I have advisors go into the first couple units, which gives them a lot of research, um, the policies, and it's it's all online, like a canvas. It's a canvas course right now, and so there's some assessment at the end and that way going into a conversation with with shadowing another advisor on the team they feel a little bit more you know equipped as far as like what type of knowledge do you need to have you know when you're working with the student day to day and so we we try to and then you know having them shadow other advisors even if the advisors have only been advising for a little bit, that's okay. It, as long as they are advising and they're on our team, we want them to to get to know their style because we all advise a little differently. I, I make sure they share their advising notes with each other so that they can see the differences. You know, I, I typically have a shorter, brief advising note, but I know some of our advisors have a lot more detail because they don't want anything to be missing. So, so just the differences there and, and sort of finding their own path. So I, I definitely want advisors to feel part of the family right away. And that, that seems to, to keep our people with us. I mean, throughout the whole pandemic, we, we definitely were able to keep all of our advisors with us and even our student assistants, surprisingly, you know, I was really worried, but they came through, they, they handled it. Uh, from home, they helped us as a front, a virtual front desk. They, they helped us, you know, put students into different offices, and there's just extremely talented student assistants that that helped us. Um, but they stuck with us too, which is really great, and I'm I'm really glad for that. So I think just just including everyone right away is helpful. You know, I I was given a giant binder and was in a cubicle for two weeks. That's how I trained, and I don't think. That was great, <laughs> but I still could hear people advising because we're we're in cubes, so the cubicles, you know, you can hear what's going on. So that was helpful, um, just being able to hear people advise while I was studying executive orders uh, was was pretty helpful. I'm just trying to think my training way back when I think it was just go shadow people and then all right we're gonna start. You're ready. Sink or swim. Yeah, I think I shadowed for a week and then they're like, okay, take your first student. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I guess. <laughs> so you've, I mean, you've done a lot at Fullerton, a lot in advising. You've also presented, and so I want to kind of talk about a couple of the presentations that you've done uh, to highlight. So one of them was the online probation tutorial, a campus-wide collaboration to support the whole student. And so you presented this or co-presented this at the 2019 California Collaborative Conference. And this was something that involved like seven steps of contact. And then it was like redesigned to five steps. And so how did this kind of <laughs> tutorial start? And 
you know, how did you figure it, like this w- would be the best way to to work with students? Yes. Okay. This was a presentation I collaborated with uh, the brilliant Kathy Rivas in our office. So she's one of our advisors. She coordinates um, what was the probation tutorial. Now we call it uh, the reset uh, reset course for uh, students on academic notice. So they instead of a tutorial video, it's a Canvas course now with with requirements and all the colleges uh, put in their two cents on it and everything. So it's it's even more powerful than it used to be. But yeah, a funny thing about that, that presentation at, in San Diego, um, one of the evaluations said like, I really liked Kathy, but the taller guy was so boring. That was me. So I was the taller guy uh, that was really boring. But the seven steps, of, the seven steps of contact, that was all sort of derived in, in the office when I was advising with, I don't know if you know Dina Bartoloni, but she's over at Chapman. Uh, she used to be involved with Nakata as well. And um, she she started the seven steps and then I sort of tweaked it and then Kathy took it on and, and simplified it. Um, but yeah, it, our goal was to, you know, work with students right before their second semester started, students who are placed on probation, work with them right before the semester starts because there really isn't a lot of time once once academic status is determined and spring semester starts, you get like, you know, sometimes less than two weeks, but about two weeks. So the goal is let's work with them as soon as we can before the semester starts and let's keep them engaged. Let's keep checking in with them throughout their second semester because we want to avoid academic disqualification. And so at first we were doing seven different things as part of the program. Now, uh, then it was five and now it's, it's like a couple modules on, on a Canvas course that we can use to, to check in with them. And uh, yeah, so the tutorial, it was actually our longest tutorial ever. It was like 40, I think it was more than 44 minutes. But students at the end, they're asked to fill out a, a, you know, a Qualtrics survey, asking them what they learned from it, sort of gauging, assessing you know, what they got out of it, assessing knowledge, but also assessing what they did they value it? Was it helpful? And even though it was long, overwhelmingly, over 90% of the students said it was helpful and that they appreciated it and the detail that, that went into it. And they felt like they were advised, you know, through this tutorial. So it was very successful. But we, we wanted to be able to reach all students in a, in a new way. So this semester, we're starting the Reset Canvas course. Nice. Well, I will say from that presentation, I did not find you boring. Um, I was oh, okay. volu- I was a volunteer in in that presentation, so I was the one like t- taking time and <laughs> passing out the evals. I didn't find find you boring at all. <laughs> I appreciate that, Matt. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I thought it was funny, and I, I shared it with Kathy. I was like, Kathy, is, you you know, she just she outshines everyone in the room. She's she's amazing. So. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, was the content good? Did you learn something from it? Maybe just compared to Kathy, I'm super yeah. boring, but you know, she's a, you know, <laughs> she's good. <laughs> but and I did like about that presentation because you also talked about, um, I guess you asked the students about their their emotions, and I think like the top emotions that came about was like disappointed, sad, nervous. So you kind of get a feel mm-hmm. like, okay, where are they at um, when, when they're starting this? And I guess I can't remember, but maybe you addressed it in, in that presentation. Do you do you find out like how they feel like afterwards, um, after they've completed the tutorial? Yes, exactly. That's 
that's one of the comparisons we we ask, you know, how did you feel before and after? Before the pandemic, we actually did a workshop with the first time freshmen on probation. And we before we said anything in the workshop, we had them do a quick pre-survey. It was just like it's like a quarter sheet of a four, you know, three questions. And one was, you know, how do you feel right now about being on academic probation? And so we for many, many years we collected that. And that's sort of where we we've come up with these expressions that that students keep sent, telling us about being afraid. And we always ask, like, have you told anyone? That's one of our pre-survey questions. Like, did you tell anyone that you're on academic probation? Like, do you are you relying on anyone to help you? You know, those sort of questions are really important. We just wanted to show them, like, hey, even if you haven't told anyone, we're here. You know, we're right. here to help. And we've always been very open to to students like hey send us an email call us whatever we'll we'll get with you and so i think that's been important as a, a strategy and again just them as soon as possible you know mm-hmm. if you can before the spring semester starts because they may not even start the spring if if nobody helps them if nobody tells them like hey you're okay like you can get back on track you know even better than you were you know so something like that and then one of the other presentations you did was at the 2018 California Collaborative Conference the year before. So that was using technology for mandatory campus-wide advising, um, how online tutorials can achieve the same outcomes as in-person workshops. Um, and that one, part of the, the description or abstract for that one was institutions struggle with the logistics of mandated and advising campus-wide, but your institution has implemented and assessed the four-week-long advising campaign. So I know that was from 2018. Not sure if things have changed since then, but can you talk more about that presentation and how how you utilize the technology? Yeah, definitely. You know, we have we have a very we have two really big colleges, um, our humanities and social sciences, which has 20 something majors. You know, so there's just a lot of students there just because there's so many different majors. And then our other is the College of Business and Economics. We have an, a you know an incredible business program that's nationally ranked and and a lot of students are interested in it. So our goal, like we wanted students to know how to apply for graduation, when to do it, because we felt like that was the grad specialists, you know, in 2014 were realizing like this is a problem. You know, how can we reach students? So we thought let's try campaigns where we work with students who are about to hit the unit level that you can apply for graduation. And uh, so that's where the mandatory, the mandatory graduation advising started. And I did, I did 2015 Nakata in in Hawaii, region nine in Hawaii. I did a pre-conference on that. What happened was the college of business economics, their grad specialist was like, Hey, should we do like an online tutorial? Can we try it and see if we get the same uh, results like the same assessment on knowledge and everything, and it turns out like because we had been we had been assessing the in person workshops for a few years, so you know come 2018 we thought let's compare our results let's let's see if we do this online tutorial for a business are the the survey results the surveys were identical except for a couple things because they weren't in person, and it, it turns out knowledge wise it achieved the same thing 
plus the benefit of the online tutorial was students could go back and watch it again and again if they needed to get the information that they were looking for. So, so yeah, so we're actually in the direction now. Uh, one of the grad specialists, Caroline Harrington from the College of the Arts, she's working on an online tutorial that can be used for any college across the board. So, so now any student who's eligible to apply can watch something that'll be effective and useful and quick. You know, we're, we're trying to make it very simple because one, one benefit that we do have at Cal State Fulton is that applying for graduation is pretty much the same for every college. So we're pretty excited about it and hopefully that'll launch this semester. And then with both of these presentations and then even just throughout this interview, like it's a lot about collaborations. You know, yes, and collaborations definitely. can be hit and miss. Uh, they can be good. They can be not so good. So what have you found? Like, what's your advice for departments that are looking to do more collaboration and maybe want to implement some of the things you've talked about? How, how have you found success with those collaborations? So, yeah, I think Nakata Region 9 in 2012. So it was Las Vegas, uh, Nevada. It really opened up my eyes. That was my first time presenting, presented on our training program. But I, you know, also attended a lot of sessions where I saw like different people working together and I was like, hey, this is, this is something special. So ever since then, I really just thought, okay, I see a college that maybe isn't retaining as many students on probation as I, I would have liked. So what I did is I, I reached out to their assistant dean and said, hey, can I help do some presentations and workshops? So like I have that, that drive to just want to, to, keep students and graduate students. So I really made that effort. And then it just sort of became very natural for our office in general to just want to be there. So we go to diversity and resource centers and we go to all sorts of different places and, and do advising there and, and with them. So, so there's a place where we are meeting with them and honors as well. So collaboration is just, that's part of success. I, like to me, for a huge university like Cal State Fullerton, it won't work in silos. It's got to be people working together, different ideas being shared and and not stepped on and, and everything. So that's how we look at it in, in our office. So kind of being being open to to those ideas and being creative before being critical, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So kind of wind down. I got a couple more questions for you. So one is you won the Titan Excellence Award in 2013. And I think from what the article said, you were one of the youngest staff members to win win that award. How was that? How did that feel winning that award? It was really cool. Um, the president at the time when she announced my name, she she called me Jonathan. But that's OK. You know, <laughs> actually, I think it, it it's all about Dr. Bridget Driscoll and and uh, Julie Capelli, the assistant director at the time, just noticing that that I was working hard and coming up with with new ideas that that save the university money and save students money. So they they based that award. Well, they nominated me because of some work I did on peak credit for for a couple of years. I had been working there as an advisor, uh, as a grad student, and then professionally and. Every, you know, every fall, we're like, okay, all these first-time freshmen are coming in with AP credit, but they're registering for classes. Like, we need to, like, send them emails and, and tell them to change their schedule. And I thought, well, if they already have the credit, can't the university just automate this effort? Like, can't just automate it so that they can't enroll in these classes? Or... So I did the work 
that we always wanted to do. And I asked, I asked records, Hey, can I have a list of all the students with, who are coming in first time freshmen who have AP credit? And, you know, I just dug into each student to figure out if they were enrolled in anything. And it was, I had student, I had like 160 students change their schedule. Some had multiple classes that they were enrolled in that they didn't need. So when we, when I, I presented this to, to Dr. Driscoll, you know, I calculated like this is how much the state saved on, on these students not taking classes they didn't need. This is how much the students saved. You know, it was, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and so I think I, whatever I presented to her, to Dr. Driscoll, just gave her this perfect nomination, like information, you know, like she had the data to show that I was being useful to the university. And so, yeah, it worked out. And, and I've tried to nominate my people many times. It's just, it's been uh, difficult because it is, it's, it, they pick, you know, sometimes only one person out of so many for this award every year. But I, yeah, you know, I, I didn't see that detail until I, I sent you the, that I was awarded. I went back to that link and I was like, oh yeah, I guess I was the youngest. Uh, I don't know if that's true anymore, but at the time it was. <laughs> hey, even if it's changed, if there's someone younger that, that won it, you were, when you won it at that time, yeah. I was at that time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of things I didn't even know about you, so including winning that award or even that you're in a cover band. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I wish we only covered one band, but but we cover like all sorts of things. So yeah, I've been drumming since I was 12. And I actually started with this band when I was 16. And they are currently called Midlife Crisis. So the lead guitarist, he's the genius of it all. Like he knows every song possible on guitar and sings it. And I'm just along for the ride. But uh, yeah, so ever since I was 16, I've been playing you know, Rolling Stones and the Eagles. And yeah, so we, we just try to to cover, you know, classic pop and rock that, that people remember. And I'm trying to get them to play uh, some Weezer songs this year. We'll see. We'll see if it happens. Well, yeah, Weezer's really good. I mean, they've they been are. around for a while. Um, I was just <clears throat> at the um, Hella Mega Tour last summer. And yeah, Weezer was there with Fall Out Boy and, and Green Day. Oh, that was a fun time. Yeah, my dream is to be a part of Geezer, which is the the Weezer cover band. So we'll see. <laughs> nice. They're like old guys that play Weezer songs. So we'll see. Maybe uh, your band can play at uh, some some conferences. Maybe, I've uh... <laughs> I've had that on my mind. I've had that on my mind. I've had it on well, my mind. So if uh, Raquel Engels and Dwan Jackson are listening, <laughs> I think you have. A Region 9 Calcan band uh, at that conference. We could make it happen. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but if listeners have any questions on anything that we went over, anything you answered today, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, just just send me an email to my uh, Cal State Fulton email. So it's J-L-O-U-D-O-N. So jloudon at fullerton.edu. Yeah, I'm happy to connect with anyone. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for being on the podcast today, Josh. Thanks for having me, Matt. Or should I call you Jonathan? <laughs> <That'd be fun. laughs> let's do that let's do that all right take care all right you too appreciate you joining us josh for this podcast interview i learned a lot hearing about the fullerton finish preventing graduation deferrals as well as your time examining generational differences in language great stuff 
Now on to our next interview, and that is with Dr. Jenny Bloom from Florida Atlantic University. So last episode, our interview with Tony Lazarovich from University of Nebraska-Lincoln was conducted by two former guests, and that was Dr. Craig McGill from Kansas State University and Dane Sanowski from Temple University. And on this interview, we have Dane back with us. Hey, Dane. Hey, Matt. Good to be back. Yes, awesome to have you here. And also here with you is another past guest, and that was from episode 46 of the podcast titled Recharged and Ready to Advise. And that is with Josh Lineroad from Lake Erie College. Josh, how are you? Fabulous, Matt. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, and I hear you're going to be having a birthday soon, so happy early birthday to you. Thank you. It's the big 30. (laughs) And I think for you, as well as for Dane, this will be a fun interview, I think a fantastic one, because the connections that you have with our next guest. So I'm going to leave it to both of you to kind of take over and have a good time. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. So yes, today we are very pleased and happy to have with us Dr. Jenny Bloom. So Jenny Bloom is a full professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Research Methodology at Florida Atlantic University. In addition, she's the coordinator of the Higher Education Leadership Master's Degree Program and founder of the Office of Appreciative Education at FAU. That's the big one. She previously served as a clinical professor and director of the MED program in higher education and student affairs at the University of South Carolina. Prior to the University of South Carolina, she served as the Associate Dean for Student Affairs and Medical Scholars Program at the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Bloom also served as the 2007-2008 president of the NACADA National Academic Advising Association, NACADA, as we know it, and was named the recipient of NACADA's Virginia and Gordon Award for Excellence in the Field of Advising in 2017. Dr. Bloom has co-authored six books and numerous articles and has presented her work at over 500 higher ed institutions and conferences. Wow. Welcome to the welcome to the podcast, Jenny. How are you? Thanks so much, Dane. I'm doing great. Thank you for that kind introduction. Yeah, you're welcome. Josh, what do we got going on here? What's so our to get everything uh, started off? How did you get into higher education and specifically academic advising itself? <laughs> good, good question. So how did I get started? Well, I certainly didn't come out of the womb thinking that I was going to uh, be an academic advisor or a professor or the dean of students of a medical school, that's for sure. Uh, I was born in Ohio and grew up uh, mainly in Champaign, Illinois. And I was an athlete and I played volleyball, basketball, softball in high school. My mom was a sixth grade teacher. My dad worked for General Mills and he was a salesman. But most everybody in my family was in kind of education in one way or another. So I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was growing up. And that was combine my love of sports with my love of education And so I majored in physical education teaching at Illinois State University and really enjoyed that. But when I got to my student teaching, I realized, oops, this really isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I wasn't sure, though, what I wanted to do. And 
I, uh, like I say, I grew up in Champaign. My next door neighbors were Bob and Elaine Copeland, who were this power couple at the University of Illinois. And their son, Rob, was a good friend of mine who I had played lots of uh, thousands of hours of basketball with growing up. And somehow word got to them that I had decided I didn't want to be a PE teacher. And so they made an appointment to come see me. And I wasn't exactly sure <laughs> what that meant because I wasn't normal. And they said, hey, we heard that, you know, you're not going to be a PE teacher. We think you should come to Illinois and get your master's degree and come work for Bob. And I was like, okay, sure, that uh, that sounds better than I had no clue what I was going to do. So sure. And that ended up being kind of a real life-changing moment for me. And my master's degree is in athletic administration, but what was life-changing was working for Bob, which was involved working with the transition program at Illinois, which was at the time for a program for underrepresented minority students who mainly came from the Chicago public schools with lower ACT scores and high school ranks. And literally the first day that I met with a student, I was like, this is what I am going to do for the rest of my life. And I have um, done that since, since that time. And so I thought though that I wanted to be an athletic advisor right? Kind of still trying to bring in that athletic part of me uh, with the advising. And I got a chance to do that during my second year in my master's degree program and quickly learned that that wasn't what I wanted to do either. And uh, so I was then kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I applied for some advising positions and I got one at the Institute of Aviation at the University of Illinois. And I spent five years working there. And then through uh, another kind of weird uh, occurrence, I, I was at a golf tournament and there was a person that I knew that was on the faculty in the College of Education. And he said to me at the 19th hole, he said, Jenny, you really should start working on your doctorate. And I said, yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. But, you know, basically no way. Um, he's like, no, really, you should apply because the higher ed program may be shutting down. And if you don't get in now, you may never be able to get in, you know, five, 10 years from now. But if you get in, then you'd be grandfathered in. And so this was about a year after I had started working as an academic advisor. And uh, so I'm like, gosh, you're taking away all of my excuses for not doing this degree. So I started doing that while I was working full time. And, you know, fast forward four years later, here I am. I've got my EDD in higher education and uh, five years of full-time experience working in as an undergraduate advisor. And so I was looking for a new opportunity and one came open at the University of Illinois College of Medicine at Urbana-Champaign. And it involved, um, I was the admissions coordinator for the MD-PhD program. So at that time, it was one of the largest MD-PhD programs in the country. We had about 175 students. And I started there and kind of worked my way up. So from coordinator, assistant director, associate director, administrative director, and then there came an opportunity for 
Um, we had, because of budget cuts, <laughs> we were merging the MD-PhD office with the College of Medicine Student Affairs office, and I was named the associate dean in charge of both of those areas. And uh, so I spent 12 years at the College of Medicine, and then I kind of reinvented myself and be, became a, a clinical faculty member at the University of South Carolina, where I ran the higher ed and student affairs master's degree program. And then seven years ago, I moved from a clinical position at South Carolina to a tenure track position at Florida Atlantic University. And I went in as an associate professor without tenure and went through the tenure and promotion process and became a full professor and earned tenure uh, a few years back. So that's kind of the my 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 story and I'm sticking to it, right? <laughs> but it certainly has been quite the journey. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, we love to hear, you know, uh, obviously every every person's story is unique and two pieces right off the bat that I like hit with me, right? So I was uh, also slated to be a secondary ed or secondary education Spanish major. I was in my student teaching phase and I was like, maybe college students I'd prefer. Right. And yep. I will, I will say too, like uh, your mentor, Bob, I had my tennis coach was Bob Barton and he's the one who recommended I become involved with like student orientation and student government. So he's the one who pushed me into getting involved as a student leader, which then really led to my passion to working with college students. So that, that's yeah. great. I, I love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Dane, you know, I, for me, like, it's just such an important reminder that literally every conversation that we have with another human being has the potential to literally change the course of their life. And that certainly has happened to me. And it's been a whole series of people. And I can never pay back Bob and Elaine Copeland for giving me this opportunity and seeing potential in me at, frankly, at a time when I thought I had no potential. I mean, I was at a real low spot because, you know, I had this sense of this is what I'm going to do with my life is be a PE teacher. And then that gets stripped away. And it's like, whew, I was like, boy, I don't know if I can trust my own judgment. And because they saw this in me and gave me this opportunity, it literally changed the trajectory of my entire life. And I can't pay them back but I have spent my entire career trying to pay it forward, right? Trying to see potential in other people, helping them to, you know, put up a mirror to them and say, gosh, look, look at, look at you from this perspective as I see you. I see that potential in you. And what a gift it is, right? To be the recipient of that. But the thing that I didn't realize at the time is that it's also a gift to be on the other side, mm -hmm. right? To be the person who's seeing that potential in other people, who's giving people an opportunity to, to shine and to step into something that they don't think that they can do, but they can do it if you give them the chance. And so um, I'm, I'm a real big believer in in paying it forward. And, and I think that's what the advising profession really is about. I think that also speaks to the importance of having knowing that you have somebody in your corner in case something starts to go awry with everything. Because I have a similar story 
as both of you. Uh, I was originally a middle school education major, wanting to teach science and social studies, did my first in-classroom experience my freshman year, and I'm like, no, thank you. Um, yep. And then I, I was did my undergraduate at the University of Mount Union, and I had an amazing mentor in um, Dr. Sarah Torp Gerard, and she helped me find my path with what I wanted to do um, in the count, kind of counseling profession. Um, and I eventually knew I wanted to get into higher education. And then once I did my internship at Youngstown State University, my internship supervisor, Molly Burdett, like she was like, yeah, academic advising is really cool. So I got into that and I'm like, this is what I want to do. So yeah. I think this speaks to how important mentors are. And then knowing that you have people in your corner cheering you on along the way, giving you the skills to be successful and, but also giving you the skills needed for you to be a mentor down the line. Yeah. I also think Josh, that I, I totally agree with you about the importance of mentorship and people, you know, seeing potential in you and giving you opportunities. But I also think that what's key is experience. Mm -hmm. Like you can think you want to do something, but gosh, there's no substitute for actually doing it. So I'm always a big proponent of, you know, master's degree students in, in the programs that I run for getting them internship experiences and, you know, trying things out because simply reading about a field is not the same as actually getting hands-on experience in that field. And that it isn't a waste of time if you decide, oh, I don't think I want to be an academic advisor, but I got this experience over here doing career advising and that's what I want to do. Great. Great. Uh, you know, we, we need good people working in higher education, no matter what they're doing. But the more hands on experience that we can get people early on, I think the better. Definitely. Yeah. All right. So, Jenny, um, I know a lot of listeners to this episode are probably here because of appreciative advising. Your name yeah. is synonymous with when you hear appreciative advising, the first name I know that pops into our minds is Jenny Bloom, right? So talk to us a little bit, you know, so those who may not be aware of what appreciative advising is, um, can you give just like a basic overview of that approach, how that came about? Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just like uh, appreciative advising, you know, first of all, again, totally changed the course of my career. I wouldn't have become a faculty member if it were not for appreciative advising. So it's kind of a fun story about how this came about. So I was um, working at the College of Medicine and I went to an American Council on Education event in Chicago. It was the Illinois Women's Leadership Network through ACE. And there was a woman who spoke and she was talking about her own leadership path. And it turns out she was like the vice president for business services at Illinois State University, my alma mater. And during her talk, she talked about this opportunity that she had to go to ACE and get hands-on leadership experience um, through and, and, and training through ACE. And they had this women's network. And so, I, you know, it was just one little thing that she said, but I went up to her afterwards and I said, you know, gosh, this was a fantastic talk. You... 
I wanted to follow up on one thing that you said. You mentioned something about this ACE network and opportunities for women to, you know, get some additional leadership training. And she said, yeah, yeah, this was a great opportunity. I spent like three and a half days at one DuPont circle in DC learning. And I was like, great, this really sounds interesting. How would I learn more? She's like, oh, the thing is you have to be nominated to be able to attend this. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that. And she's like, I'll nominate you. And I was like, really? <laughs> that's, that's very nice of you. And so I followed up with her and I said, you know, you were probably joking, but I would, I would love to have the opportunity to attend this, this uh, training. And she's like, I'll write you the letter. So, you know, she'd met me for five minutes and she ended up writing this letter on my behalf, which says something that she was putting her name out there for me after five minutes. So anyway, I got to go to this training and what I didn't realize was that it was actually for women leaders who were going to become presidents someday. No clue about that. I was the youngest person there by about 20 years. And I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? But nonetheless, I loved it. And it turns out they bring in college presidents, women college presidents to talk about their presidencies and the issues that they face. And so uh, the last day, there was a woman who came and gave a seven hour presentation about how to advance your career. And her name was Nancy Archer Martin, and she's an executive search consultant. And she was giving this presentation that was this values-based uh, approach to advancing your career. And about an hour into it, somebody, and just keep in mind that there was like, I don't know, 25, 30 women at this table. And she said uh, to, to Nancy, Nancy, this is such good stuff. Like, have you ever written anything? Do you have a book? And she's like, you know what? I've been meaning for the last 10 or 15 years to write a book on what we're talking about today. But, you know, now Jenny and I are going to write this book together. And so here I am, I'm at this table with all these very powerful women. Everybody has a name tag. I'm like, I pretty sure this is day three. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Jenny here, but I literally scanned the room to make sure she wasn't talking about somebody else. And so she went on and, but then she kept talking all day long about this book that we were going to write together. So at the end of the day, I said, Nancy, I love this presentation. If you are at all serious about doing this book, I would love to write this book with you. And she's like, I'm dead serious. So what happened then is executive search consultants are really busy. So I um, sent her an email and I had follow up a couple of times. And, and she said, you know what? These, these forums, these ACE forums are, are hosted every six months. And she's like, why don't you come to the next forum while I present? And I will, you know, do the presentation. You take notes and then we'll go back to my house on Nantucket and we'll write. I'm like, oh, well, this isn't such a rough gig to go back to Nantucket to her house to write this book. And so we did that and we came up with the outline. So every six months we would go back and eventually she and I started co-presenting. So one time <laughs> we were presenting and someone came up to us afterwards and said, is this appreciative inquiry? And we said, 
uh, I don't know, <laughs> what's appreciative inquiry? And so she, this woman told us a little bit about it and said, oh, well, that sounds like it's in the ballpark. So we went back to Nantucket and we spent that whole weekend just basically Googling appreciative inquiry. And the more that we were, you know, learning about appreciative inquiry, the more it's like, oh my gosh, yes, this can be kind of the theoretical framework to undergird this book. Now, that summer... I was also teaching a class on academic advising at the University of Illinois. This was the second time that I had taught it. Uh, One of the ridiculous things that I did the first time that I taught it was when I was coming up with the syllabus, I was like, you know, what, what would I, what would I have wanted in a course when I was a graduate student? And my one regret from my graduate studies was that I had no publications. But I'm like, you know what? If somebody had made me write a publication, write an article in class for a class, I would have done it. And so I'm like, I'm going to have these students submit an article as a requirement for the course. Now, keep in mind, when I did this first in 1999, I had zero publications. I had no business, no business assigning other people to submit an article because I had never done it myself. But I'm like, If I have them do it, I know I'm going to do it too. So 1999, I submitted my article. All the students in the class submitted their article to the mentor at Penn State, which was brand new at that point. We all got published. So here it is. It's 2002. And I'm teaching this course now for the second time. And I'm like, we all got published last time. So we might as well put it back in the syllabus and have people submit articles. And then I'm thinking, gosh, at the end of this semester, if everybody gets published, they're going to have as many publications as I have. So I better write another one. So I'm trying to, I'm learning about appreciative inquiry. I'm kind of trying to come up with a topic to write about because I'm making my students write an article. And I'm like, gosh, the more I'm thinking about this appreciative inquiry, the more I realize this is kind of what I'm doing in my academic advising. And so uh, Nancy and I ended up co-authoring this article titled Incorporating Appreciative Inquiry into Academic Advising. And my goodness, uh, talk about a life-changing event. And then I started doing presentations at Nakata. There was a lot of interest in it. Then I started getting invited to go to campuses to speak. And in 2005, I met Bryant Hudson, who was at the time at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And he came up to me at the Nakata conference and said, after my presentation, hey, I just want to introduce myself, Bryant Hudson. I'm at UNCG. I wanted to let you know we're doing what you're talking about you know, we've read your article, we've been to your presentations, and we're doing it. And I was like, oh, really? That's so cool. I had no idea. And he said, yeah, and even better, we've got data. We've got data that shows that this has an impact. I was like, oh, wow, let's talk. And so eventually, Brian and his wife, Jane, um, Brian invited me to UNCG, and we just kind of hit it off. We went out to dinner the night before, and we started talking 
And we really kind of that night decided, you know what, we're going to write a book together on appreciative advising. They had coined appreciative advising. And so we ended up writing the 2008, the appreciative advising revolution book together. So, um, (laughs) but it would have never happened had I not had this opportunity at the ACE women's forum to learn about appreciative inquiry in the first place. And that timing in terms of trying to come up with a topic to write about for my class um, was, was, uh, you know, serendipity for sure. Um, So would you be able to just briefly describe the concept of appreciative advising and then how um, current academic advisors and future academic advisors can incorporate that into their advising sessions? Yeah. So, you know, what's, What's happened over the years is that obviously this started in academic advising, right? And what has surprised me is um, how it has grown beyond academic advising. So it is a theory to practice framework for how do you build good relationships built on trust with students. Now, that is kind of a more recent (laughs) definition, but What's happened is that there are six phases to appreciative advising, and I can go through them real quick. Uh, Disarm, it's all about the importance of making a a good first impression instead of being like looking at your watch and being like, yeah, what do you want? To, you know, be fully present and engaged when we're meeting with a student, paying attention to how our office is decorated, uh, trying to create a warm, welcoming environment for students. So that's disarm. The second phase is discover. And this is where we start to get to know our students and their stories, right? They don't come to us as blank slates. So how can we get to know a little bit about their stories and their strengths and skills that they're bringing to the table? The third phase is the dream phase. So once we've gotten to know students a little bit, then we can start to inquire about their hopes and dreams for the future, which leads to the design phase. And the design phase is not about me telling you what to do. It's about co-creating a plan together. Our students have expertise and we need to engage them in this process of coming up with a plan. Um, I don't know about you when you were 18, 19 years old, but I kind of, I peaked. I kind of knew everything at 18, 19. I can assure you it's been downhill ever since. But 18, 19, I, you know, I'm, I'm a rebel. Like, I'm not going to follow what you tell me what to do. I'm going to forge my own path, right? So we want to involve them in coming up with that plan. Deliver delivers when the student goes out and delivers on that plan. And guess what? They're going to make mistakes. They're human. They're perfectly imperfect, just like you and me. And so how can we help them learn from those mistakes and keep moving forward? And then the last phase is the don't settle phase. And this is a reminder to both us and to our students that we can always get better. Like this is a lifelong learning process that we're all engaged in. And so we always need to, you know, keep, keep raising our own internal standards um, and, and be committed to being true lifelong learners. So what, what has happened is, yes, it started in advising, but guess what? Those phases are relevant in admissions, orientation, Greek life, student conduct, 
And that's what's happened. It has spread across disciplines in higher ed. And certainly within divisions of student affairs, we've, you know, we wrote a book on appreciative college instruction. You can use those six phases as as a way to kind of build your curriculum, let's say for a university 101 type of course or any course. I teach graduate level courses. That approach, those six phases can be a framework to help guide guide us. Um, and so we also now offer things on appreciative administration. So the key to all those things, though, is what, what I call the human element, right, that we're all human. And it's really it's through these relationships that we're learning and we're growing and developing and that we just can't assume that people know how to ask good questions. I didn't know how to ask good questions until I learned about appreciative inquiry. And now I've, you know, I've read lots of books about the power of questions. I never thought about that. I never thought about that. So um, it, it's a framework, but what I want to tell you is that it's not a dictation. It's not like you have to go through all six phases when you're meeting with a student it's a framework to help guide. And, you know, I think in particular for me, it's, it's on those days when I'm not feeling at my best and or I'm not, I'm, I'm just not connecting with the student. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to go back to disarming a little bit more. I haven't gained their trust yet. I'm going to have to ask some discover questions, get to know them a little bit more because I can just see that we're not connected yet. And, and so that's, I think the power of having a framework um, kind of behind the scenes to uh, rely on. Yeah, that's great. And uh you know, in a lot of conversations I've had with, you know, those in academic advising as it relates to really like the training and onboarding of new advisors, a key piece that is always missing is the focus on that relational core competency, right? A yes. lot of times people focus on, hey, here's the information that you need to know, right? You know, the curriculum, the systems to get you up and running. But I love, I love how appreciative advising puts the focus back on that relationship building aspect. And that at the end of the day, <clears throat> we're all humans and we need to connect, right? There's we that all need, need to, to connect. Yep, <laughs> yep. And so like to get to know your students, I, I view my, how I work with students as a two-way relationship. For they sure. Learn, they, they can learn from me, but I also learn so much from them, right? You know, Absolutely. I work, yeah, I work with health profession students and every day they're coming to me with like, hey, I want to be an oncologist or I want to be this type of thing in healthcare. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Let's research it together, right? You know, and how, how to get you there. So, I I, yeah, I love how the, the framework just is that reminder of, hey, get to know the person, listen to their story, because there's a lot of power to their story that they share. No doubt. And you can learn so much about somebody in a short amount of time. That's, I think, a misconception that people have. It's like when you say, oh, you got these six phases, like I don't have time to do six phases. Well, you're not necessarily going through every single phase. But I'm telling you, Dane, that what 
what's so powerful is if you're asking good questions, good open-ended questions that allow people to tell you a story about themselves, you can learn a lot about somebody in a very short amount of time. Like when I do training, you know, I'll pair people up and give them literally two minutes to ask one of these discover kinds of questions. Like, tell me about a time you had a positive impact on somebody else's life in two minutes two minutes, you can learn so much from somebody. So it, it, it really does not take more time. And I'm glad that you tied that back, you know, to Wes Habley's work uh, on, on the different approaches the conceptual, informational and relational. And I think where appreciative advising kind of falls under is for sure, under the relational component, but it's also the conceptual component. And as we know, a lot of the advisor training tends to focus more on the informational aspects about here's the deadlines, here's the policies, all that. And that's important, right? If you're going to build trust, you have to be able to give really good, accurate information to students, or you will not obviously be able to maintain a, a relationship um, built on trust if you don't, if you can't do that. But the conceptual and relational parts are, I would argue, just so important to, and, and oftentimes do get, get uh, short, short shrifted a little bit on, on advisor training. And what's nice is that all of this framework also makes having those very difficult conversations that are unavoidable in student appointments from time to time. It makes it a whole lot easier, in my opinion. Um, yes. So it's more the conversations of I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And having the framework to build the relationships, to build that trust and building that rapport with the students just makes those types of conversations a whole lot easier. Indeed. And, you know, it isn't all about sunshine and rainbows, right? Our students are facing some really challenging circumstances, especially within the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, they're facing all kinds of things. And we often have to deliver bad news. You know, I was the dean of students of a medical school. You know, I had uh, I had to have some really tough conversations around being dismissed, from medical school, that's a very devastating, devastating thing to have happen. But, you know, I, I'm a I'm a believer that we can uphold policy without being jerks about it, that we can say, here's what the committee has decided. They thoroughly discussed and deliberated your case. The decision has been made that you're no longer going to be allowed to continue on uh, at our medical school. But let's talk about options. Yeah. Let's talk. Your life is not over. Life is not over. Let's let's talk through those options. And then, you know, we come up with a plan together. It's not, you know, like you're out of here. <laughs> bye bye. Uh, that, yeah, we don't have to do that. We don't have to be jerks to uphold policy. Uh, Jenny, real quick. I know. Is there an I want you to be able to give a plug. There's an upcoming session, I believe, out of the Office of Appreciative Advising. I know I just saw it on LinkedIn. You had shared it. Do you want to give a plug for that real quick? Yeah. So we have a, a whole free series of webinars that we've uh, that we sponsor. We started this during the the pandemic offering free webinars on topics related to appreciative education, appreciative advising. 
And we've got one coming up that is based on a special edition of the Journal of Appreciative Education because we started that um, a, a while, 10 years ago now. And the special edition was about how to take an appreciative approach to being innovative in uh, educational settings. And so we're going to have the authors for uh, each of the articles that was in that special edition come give a brief overview of the topics that they covered in the in their articles. And then we're going to go into breakout rooms so people will have a chance to kind of dive deeper into the articles that they're most interested in. But yeah, at uh, it's at www.fau.edu slash OAE. So Office of Appreciative Education is what that stands for. You can access all of the webinars. And the nice thing is that we everyone that we've done is recorded and available for free. So what is some advice that you would give to somebody that is going to be new in the advising profession? Advice to someone who is new in the advising profession? Um I think the first thing that I would recommend doing, we always say in appreciative advising, before you appreciatively advise other people, you need to get to know yourself. So, you know, who are you? What are your identities? Um, why are you wanting to be an advisor? You know, taking that time to do some self-reflection, I think is really important. Then I think equipping yourself with the tools that you're going to need. And of course, the, we've talked about the conceptual, informational, relational aspects of it. I'm telling you, there has never been a better time to access free professional development than right now, right now. And Adventures in Advising, I mean, <laughs> I, I want to give Matt a huge shout out because I'm such a big fan. I have so enjoyed listening to all of the the uh, the other guests that have been on this podcast. I mean, just spectacular professional development. Uh, we have free webinars. Nakata has all kinds of resources that are available for free. And of course, the big difference between when I was starting out as an undergraduate advisor and now is that if I don't know the answer to something, I just Google it and voila, there it is. There's the answer. And so uh, it's an exciting time, I think, in terms of being a new advisor, because there are more resources now than ever before that you can access and for free, which is super important. Yeah, speaking of, so Nakata is obviously a big part of all of our lives here. Um, yeah. And yeah, you had been... Uh, the, the the president was 2007, 2008. Can you talk to a little bit about your experience as president of the organization, some some memories that you have there? Yeah, so it, it you know, what an honor of a lifetime, let me tell you, an honor and privilege of a lifetime. I am forever grateful to Nakata for all of the opportunities that it gave me to become involved within the organization, develop my leadership skills, look at myself differently. Um, uh, serving as president, you know, you you don't really take over as president until the end of the the uh, the conference. And so, 2007, we were in Baltimore, and um, you no, know, it was. Yeah, 
Yeah, 2007, we were in Baltimore. 2008, we were in Chicago. So that was a real thrill for me because I had uh, taken my position at the University of South Carolina. So to be able to return home to the state of Illinois uh, for my my year as as president was a real, real thrill and honor. Um, some highlights from that year, that's the year that the Emerging Leaders Program launched. And that was due to the great work that had been done before before my presidency, Susan Campbell um, at, and, and other administrations beforehand had really done the legwork on making that happen. But it launched during uh, during my presidency. And so I was one of the original uh, emerging leader mentors. So that was a big thrill. Um, you know, the, what I, what my area of emphasis for that year was to increase the scholarship and research on academic advising. So you might imagine how thrilled I am <laughs> that today in Nakata, we've got Wendy Troxel uh, leading research efforts that, that I, I'm just so happy to see the advances that have been made within Nakata to do that. Another area of emphasis during um, my time was the um, I wanted to increase the diversity of the leadership. And so, you know, that has taken time and but I'm really excited to see, you know, all of the advances that have in particular been made in the last few years in terms of increasing the diversity of the leadership of Nakata. So, yeah, so those are some of, of the highlights. So how do you focus on self-care when it comes to <laughs> advising and everything that you have going on? Because obviously you're an extremely busy person. Yes, I've got a lot of stuff going on, but don't we all, right? Um Self-care. It's such an important topic. I'll tell you, this is something that I did a terrible job of uh, between the time that I started working as a full-time professional, started working on my doctorate, right? Balancing those two things, I just stopped moving <laughs> and just was reading all the time. And, you know, that unfortunately kind of carried through to over the next couple, like the next decade of my life. I just got out of the habit and I of exercising and I know better, right? I mean, I was a physical education teaching major. I have a master's degree in athletic administration. Talk about, you know, <laughs> talking the talk, but not walking the walk. That's what, what I was, what I was doing. And I was coming up on 39 and I was just tired of being tired. I don't know if anybody knows what that feels like, but I was just tired of being tired. And I'm like, I have to do something different. And so I, at the time there was this kind of this 10,000 steps movement and at Illinois, the chancellor sponsored a thing where you got a free pedometer and uh, they were kicked off a, a whole thing about 10,000 steps. And I was like, yep, I need to do that. I probably do that. And I, I got that pedometer <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, yeah, I probably take 10,000 steps every day. Not so much. It was about 2,000. 3,000 on a good day. And so December 25th of 2005, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take 10,000 steps every day for the next year. 
And I knew if I didn't do it every day that it wouldn't become a habit. And I was really good at rationalizing not doing that. So um, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And so that's what I did. In 2006, I didn't miss a day of taking 10,000 steps. So that's about five miles. And then what happened was I moved to South Carolina and started teaching. And I was taking 10,000 steps most days, but I was taking off Wednesdays because I was teaching at South Carolina, a three-hour class, Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening. I'm like, I deserve having a, a, a Wednesday off, I think. But of course, what was happening on Wednesday was that I just didn't feel as good. And so I have, I just surpassed 10 years of taking 10,000 steps every single day. I have not missed in 10 years. So that has been life-changing for me. There's it. There is no doubt that the re- one of the main reasons that this, the last 15 years of my life have been the most productive of my life is that I'm taking care of myself first. And I'm going out every morning and I started walking, but then I eventually, to save time, <laughs> not proud to say that, but to save time, started running. And, um, you know, now I'm, I'm running five miles uh, a day. Coming up in a couple of months, I'll have gone two years uh, without missing a day of running five miles every morning. So that's just what I do in the morning is I get up and I go, go run. So that has been... Um, just a, a lifesaver for me, in particular during the pandemic. I think it's it's just anchored me, and you know I'm taking good care of myself so that I can keep my cup full, so that hopefully I can take good care of other people. And that's not being selfish. It's just uh, that's how I start every single morning. That's great. And you're you're right. You can't pour from an empty cup, right? And as as long as you're in a good spot. Of, you can then turn around and help others as well, you know. Um, you bet. Yeah, and and too, like a lot of a lot of time with self care, uh, people tend to focus on what do I need in the moment to feel better. I love how you automatically planned out like long term. Let me make this repeat a repeated thing, make it part of my routine. So I sorry, get that long term care that you need to take care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the beauty of it is that although it's hard to get a habit started now, it's not hard for me to go out. I mean, it's just what I do. It's like, you know, I get up, I brush my teeth and I have my, you know, I put on my running shoes and I head out the door and I just don't even have to. It doesn't take any extra you know, moral fortitude for me to to do it because now it's just that's just part of my my life, and that it it takes a while though to get to that point, right? And so, you know, what I'm not saying is anybody should go out and start running five miles, <laughs> like I did many years of walking at least ten thousand steps before I ever started to, to run. So this has been a long process. This is 2005, that's 17 years ago that I started doing this, but it has been a game changer for me. All right, Jenny. So as we're starting to wrap things up here, um, any final advice? And then um, in terms of if anyone would like to get in contact with you, what's kind of the best way to, to connect? 
Yeah. Um, so my my email address is Jenny Bloom fourteen. So J E N N Y B L O O M one four at gmail dot com. That's probably the best way to get in touch with me. I would love to to chat with anybody who wants to to learn more about appreciative advising. Um, I, I you know what I want to reiterate is that Nakata is such an amazing organization and I have had, you know, just some of my best friends have, I have made through Nakata and, um, the, the offerings that Nakata is doing. I mean, I came to the Cincinnati conference. I'm, I'm at the annual conference almost I've missed now two or three due to uh, health issues of family members, that kind of thing. But I'm, but I'm there, and I am the biggest advocate for Nakata. I'm so excited about Dr. Melinda Anderson's, you know, taking over as executive director, and looking forward to all the great things that that she and uh, the entire leadership team are are going to be doing over the next several years. It's a, obviously a time of uncertainty, but it's also a time of opportunity and looking forward to supporting Nakata as it moves forward. Well, great. Yeah, Josh, this has been an, a, an awesome opportunity. Jenny, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us today. And special thanks to Josh Lineroad and Dane Zanowski for taking on the interview duties for this. I truly appreciate it. And Jenny, I think listeners gained a lot of insight from you about appreciative advising and mentorship. And I can't wait to meet you at the annual conference in Portland. And just like that, we've reached the end of episode 53. If you can, take a quick moment to follow this podcast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Advising Podcast, and on YouTube at Adventures in Advising. And bookmark our website at adventuresinadvising.com. Check back in a couple weeks for episode 54. Take care and keep advising. Oh.